Chapter 2 Masculinities Interdisciplinary Orientations by Jamie Pitts What makes a man a man? Is it his body, his genitals and chromosomes, his muscles and brain? Is it some essential difference from women, from boys, or even from less manly men? How do economic status and race and religion define him as a man? What kind of sexual inclinations and activities make a man a man? Can people born with female genitalia become men by changing their clothes, their social roles, their bodies? Although most cultures throughout history have used the categories men and women to identify humans and distinguish between them, their answers to these questions have varied. As the order of the questions indicates, Western culture tends to define men and women in the first place through medical descriptions of bodies. But when people have sought to determine what makes a man a man or a woman a woman, cultural descriptions of a person's race, class, religion, or personal history, for example, have always been intertwined with biological ones. More broadly, the category gender has been used since the mid-20th century to refer to the biological material of our bodies, their structure and capacities, as well as to cultural norms for bodies, about how bodies can and should be, about what they should and should not do. Attitudes and acts related to biological reproduction, reproductive organs, sexual attraction and intercourse, childbearing and childrearing, are usually central to how we define gender, but so are practices related to social reproduction. How we engage in our society's efforts to sustain and reproduce itself work, education, government, war, art, etc., is highly gendered. Our engagement in these efforts is channeled along gendered lines, and our engagement tells others about our gender. Answers to questions such as, what makes a man a man, are therefore highly complex and require attention to multiple disciplines and arenas of inquiry. The answers, moreover, are unlikely to be definitive. They are likely to vary at least somewhat across cultures and times. Even if our understanding of our body's biological material is culturally dependent, as I will explain in more detail later, then so is our understanding of gender. I realize that a complex, dynamic, and culturally specific definition of gender may raise some anxieties as it opens the possibility of challenging long-held notions, cherished roles, and established practices. At the same time, I hope that readers of this book will receive this definition as good news. If gender is complex, dynamic, and culturally specific, then ancient patterns of organizing society and defining individuals along gendered lines may be open to change. For example, the common equation of men with domination and violence need not be the last word. 
Mennonites, and other men can explore what it means to be men who are peaceful at heart. In this chapter, I examine this understanding of gender and specifically of masculinity, cultural conceptions of what makes a man a man, through an interpretive summary of recent research from several disciplines, history, sociology, anthropology, biology, and theology. By interpretive summary, I mean that I will attempt to summarize the recent research, but not simply as a list. I will organize my summary to support the thesis that there are multiple masculinities, that there are and have been multiple and often conflicting answers to questions about what makes a man a man. And these answers depend on a variety of factors specific to particular times and places. Masculinity, like other identity traits, is to an important extent constructed by our society's assumptions about sex, gender, bodies, and social roles. Since there are different societies constructing masculine identities, there are different masculinities. And, as we will see, multiple masculinities within a particular society. Although we cannot simply choose willy-nilly among these masculinities, we can do the hard work of transforming our own masculinities to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22-23, and trust that the Spirit is enabling and guiding this work. This chapter is organized in three parts. In the first part, I discuss the relationship between biological and cultural designations of maleness and malehood through a discussion of birth certificates. I then turn in the second part to examine the role of iconic masculinities, icons held up as masculine exemplars and related masculinities. In the third and final part of the chapter, I provide an overview of historical Christian understandings of masculinity, especially in relating to sexuality. In each part, I draw on a range of interdisciplinary studies, as well as my own experiences of becoming a man in late 20th and early 21st century North America. My experience, of course, is limited and the reader should consult other sources, including the other essays in this volume, in order to develop a fuller picture of men and masculinities. Birth Certificates and the Body I was born in 1980 at St. Luke's Episcopal Hospital in Houston, Texas. My birth certificate, issued by the state of Texas, makes several claims about me, in addition to listing the time, date, and place of my birth, it says that my sex is male, my race is white, and that I was born to married parents who were themselves born in the United States. How am I to understand these claims? Are they indisputable and unchangeable biological facts about me? Would a birth record from a different era make different claims about me? If so, then would those claims change who I am? Before addressing those questions, I want to consider who made the claims on my birth certificate. The doctor, whose name and title are included on the certificate, presumably filled out a form about me, and this form was sent to state authorities for processing. 
The authorized certificate was then sent to my parents, and it remains in my possession. The certificate serves nostalgic purposes, but it also enables me to prove my identity and citizenship in order to get a United States passport or a social security card, apply for government benefits, and so on. Notice how both in the certificate's origins, state-certified medical staff and state institutions, and in its later use, it's ultimately the government that guarantees that I am who the paper says I am. It is the government that claims I was born in a major urban center in the United States, that I am a white male, and that I come from married American parents. For many significant practical purposes, the government's claims about my identity are taken at face value. We may see the state's collection of such information and its issuance of vital records as one of a child's earliest initiations into a specific identity. The child's identity is, to an important extent, constructed by state statistics. The child's future rests in part on being identified and identifiable as a citizen of a specific country, as of a certain race and sex, as having married parents, and so on. The state's claims about the newborn are claims about that newborn's identity, claims that will shape much of the newborn's life. The claims initiate the newborn into an enduring identity. It might be objected that the state is simply recording facts about newborns. Birth certificates report facts, and not constructing or initiating anything. The difficulty in accepting this view is that birth certificates and their categories have a history. Most countries did not begin keeping vital statistics until the 19th century. The United States only began doing so in a uniform way in 1902. The category of race used in government record-keeping is notoriously malleable, reflecting various cultural assumptions and prejudices. More broadly, the widespread use of racial categories is tied to the history of European colonization. Until 1989, the U.S. government determined a baby's race by the race or national origin of the parents. If the parents were of different races, and one of the parents was white, then the baby was assigned the non-white race. If neither of the parents was white, then the baby was assigned the father's race, unless the mother was Hawaiian or part Hawaiian, then the baby was counted as Hawaiian. In 1989, the mother's race was used to determine the baby's race. Clearly, race is not a simple category to be read off of a child's body. Can we say the same about biological sex? Most babies are born with either male or female genitalia. Male sex organs include the penis, scrotum, and testicles, and female organs include the clitoris, vulva, and vagina. These organs can be identified without thorough examination. Yet, some children are born intersex, with any of several variations in sex characteristics that do not fit binary male-female categories. For much of history, intersex people were identified from birth as the gender their external organs most resembled. But since the 19th century, surgical options have been available to make a body conform to one gender or another.
uncertainty surrounding ambiguous genitalia led to a search for other clear biological markers for sex. Since the discovery of chromosomes and hormones in the late 19th century and early 20th century, both have been proposed as fail-safe guides to determining sex and gender. But neither sex chromosomes nor sex hormones are simply identifiable as male or female. Recent advances in neuroscience led some to hope to find definitive gender differences in brain structures and capacities. But men's and women's brains are very similar, and the character and the significance of the slight variations are unclear. In any case, like everyone else, scientists may be guided by their assumptions about gender. The biological sciences are unlikely to provide us with unambiguous answers. Our bodies are not endlessly malleable. We cannot avoid all pain or stop depending on food, shelter, and companionship, or sprout wings and fly. Nevertheless, it is clear that cultural patterns of gender identification and division play a major role in determining the significance of bodily differences. No straight lines can be drawn between certain body parts and, for example, a propensity to violence or emotional nurture. These correlations have developed over millennia and in somewhat different ways in different cultural settings. Coming back to my birth certificate, we begin to see that the state of Texas's claim that I am male is not merely a biological designation. It is also a cultural designation of my gender, a designation that would shape my identity and future. The government, of course, does not act alone. I was born into a patriarchal society, and some trace of this fact is evident on my birth certificate from the fact that my mother and I have my father's last name. Patriarchy, rule by fathers, likely developed several thousand years ago as humans began to settle in agricultural communities. Communal settlements gave rise to property and to inheritance claims, which men tended to monopolize. This pattern probably disrupted more egalitarian patterns associated with earlier hunter-gather societies, some of which may have been led by women. Regardless, it seems that agriculture and patriarchy became dominant together, with important and enduring consequences for gender. From that time on, some specific tasks and capacities would be associated with men and others with women. Men gained long-term advantages over women in economics, politics, and cultural domains such as religion, art, and literature. My birth certificate thus initiated me into a gender identity associated with certain social positions and forms of power. From birth, I was identified as male, with all the privileges, possibilities, and limitations that designation has in our male-dominant society. Similar comments could be made about how my birth certificate identified me racially, white, as an American citizen, and more subtly, as belonging to a certain socioeconomic class, visible in my parents' address. These identifications were perpetuated by myriad other practices. To keep the focus on gender, my family and friends would dress me in blue, not pink. 
provide me with toy guns, not dolls, and praise me as handsome and strong, not pretty and delicate. But even if those practices had varied, the state's identification of me would be almost unshakable. Masculine icons, fathers and sons, women and stars. The term masculinity began to be used to define manly character in the 18th century. Prior to the 18th century, terms such as manly, manful, and manhood were more widely employed to designate personality characteristics that men were expected to exhibit and practices they were to engage in. Norms for masculinity developed through comparisons among men and males, and between men and women. In most cultures, the distinction between men and boys is crucial. Boys become men in various ways. As are distinctions among manly men and men who are judged as less manly, as more like women, because of their occupation, socioeconomic status, citizenship status, race, bodily characteristics, for instance, penis size, stature, musculature, or voice pitch, interests or behavior, especially sexual interests and behavior. Different profiles of ideal or normative masculinity develop in different cultures and become standards against which men and others in those cultures are measured and evaluated. Some of these ideals are shared among many of the world's cultures and in many times and places, while others vary widely and change more or less rapidly. The existence of multiple ideals of masculinity and multiple ways of varying from and resisting the ideal leads scholars to talk about masculinities, the many and sometimes conflicting ways of embodying manliness. One way to think about ideal masculinity is to think about masculine icons, the distinct masculine images or sets of masculine characteristics a given culture holds up as ideal. These characteristics can include high socioeconomic status, great physical strength and intellectual ability, sexual prowess, and specific racial identities. Masculine icons are emblems of the elite, and elite men tend to perpetuate their culture's icons in order to preserve their own status. Recent North American icons include white-collar men who combine technical rationality, scientific, political, or business knowledge, and competitive cunning, and movie and sports stars whose performances of strength and daring earn them luxury lifestyles. Working-class masculinities tend to become iconic at culture-wide level only when filtered through media and celebrity. Fatherhood in many cultures is held up as a core marker of masculine identity. To be a real man, you have to be a father. Boys are taught to imitate their fathers, and fatherhood is an assumed part of many versions of iconic masculinity. Fathers are instructed in how to perform their role, though this instruction, and their character of iconic fatherhood, has varied widely over time. Are fathers meant to be stern and aloof, or 
warm and available. Our media and our families hold up both kinds of fathers as masculine icons. A central component of most society's icons of fatherhood is successful participation in patriarchal society. In North America, iconic fathers are breadwinners. They are sexually potent husbands, heads of households, and gainfully employed homeowners. Their families bear their names, names passed down through the generations along with property and wealth. In spite of their evident power, masculine icons do not dominate unilaterally. Rather, in a given time and place, there may be multiple competing masculine icons. It is also likely that most men are not iconic. They do not live up to their culture's masculine ideals. Some of these men are liable to support and pursue iconic masculinity. Some will resist the icons of their day, and some will acquiesce in their marginal status. All these responses to masculine icons contribute to making masculinity dynamic and changing. My life can be narrated as a series of responses of veneration for a succession of masculine icons, starting with my father. He is a lawyer, and at an early age, I wanted to be a lawyer too. I was particularly drawn to the intellectual prestige and power associated with graduating from a top university and law school and mastering legal argumentation. But other icons took center stage as I became more involved with school and media. The walls of my childhood bedroom were covered with posters of male athletes representing physical and financial power far beyond that of my own familial exemplars. I later developed intense interest in films about war, gangs, and the American West, in first-person shooter computer games, and in a wide variety of musicians, most of them male. These sources gave me icons who constructed and reinforced my sense that to be a man was to be physically powerful and capable of violent domination, intuitively and individualistically intelligent and creative, heterosexually successful, wealthy and famous, or trying to be, and, in everything, competitive and highly conscious of image and status. This sense of masculinity was complicated and eventually undermined by some of the very icons who contributed to its emergence. For example, I admired black musicians, from Marvin Gaye to Mos Def, who criticized white supremacy, war, and economic exploitation. Similarly, interactions with women, from my mother to school friends to feminist authors and colleagues, and with sexual minorities helped me to begin to interrogate the ways many features of my masculine icons promoted the subordination of such people. Iconic masculinity tends to be arrayed against women and anyone who can be denigrated as feminine. In contemporary North America, this latter category usually includes some of the following. Gay and bisexual men trans men, single men, men who are not fathers, men who become fathers out of wedlock, 
poor and unemployed men, immigrants, men who are not considered white, and men with disabilities. Public discourse and private insults often associate these men with women, casting them as effeminate or as underdeveloped, unmanly boys. In many versions of iconic masculinity, women are to become conquered and controlled, and womenly men are to be humiliated and dominated. The concept of masculine icons can help us understand how answers to the question, what makes a man a man, will vary depending on time and place. There is no one basic pattern of masculinity that we can identify in a given cultural setting. Rather, there are multiple masculinities, some of which become associated with a dominant male elite and so achieve iconic status. Other masculinities can be described in relation to iconic masculinities, as complicit with it, as subordinated and marginalized by it or as resistant to it. There can be conflict among a culture's icons, and how a given individual relates to conflicting icons opens up certain possibilities for change and forecloses others. Christianity, Sexuality, and Masculinity Up to this point, I have omitted discussion of Christianity and of my own Christian faith. That omission has enabled me to discuss a wide range of other sociological factors that shape masculinity, such as the state, family, media, and the arts. I could, however, have written about church practices of initiating bodies into manhood, through baptism, for instance. Before the state began to track vital statistics in the 19th century, most birth records in the West were collected by churches at baptism. Infant baptism identifies children with a specific name, often one that bears the marks of patriarchal naming conventions, and gender and religious identity. Baptism is called christening in some traditions. I could have also written about Christian masculine icons, pastors, youth leaders, mentors, missionaries, Christian musicians, and so on, or about how Christian identity has been a significant feature of many masculine icons. In what follows, I instead provide a brief history of Christianity and masculinity, focusing especially on the relationship between Christian understandings of masculinity and sexuality. Icons will be a feature of the account, but I emphasize historical developments, again, in conversation with my personal story, in order to display continuities and divergencies in one tradition's conception of masculinity over time. Since the editors, authors, and intended readers of this book are identified in some way with the Christian tradition, it is particularly important to grasp this history. My hope is that this section will help readers better comprehend how their faith has shaped their understanding of gender and gain some tools for enriching and transforming this understanding. I begin with a short sketch of my experience of Christianity, gender, and sexuality 
as a teenager and then move to put this sketch in historical context. I became deeply involved with my Episcopal Church's youth group after a conversion experience when I was 11 years old in 1991. During the so-called culture wars that pitted conservative Christians against liberal ones. Although my church did not major in the culture wars, anxieties around key conservative issues including abortion, sexual mores, and school prayer were never far from the surface. I left the Episcopal Church for a non-denominational charismatic church when I was 17, but the message about sex, sexuality, and gender that I took away from these conservative churches was similar. In brief, that message was that sexual intercourse, most other romantic touching, and even sexual thoughts were to be reserved exclusively for marriage between a man and a woman. I have attended weddings where the couple's first kiss was at the altar. Prior to marriage, any sexual experience, any sexual desire was viewed as sinful. This conviction posed a problem for men in particular. Men, I learned, are possessed and indeed defined by their desire to seek sexual stimulation as often as possible. Men compulsively indulge in sexual fantasy, lust, masturbation, pornography, and even sexual intercourse outside of marriage. We were taught that all Christians should set their sights on marriage, and we were promised that within its bounds our sexual appetites would be fulfilled. When focused entirely on a marriage partner, those appetites would no longer be sinful. But until we married, we had to wage war against the temptation that constantly besieges men. On the other hand, women were depicted as having little or no sex drive, but instead were defined by their desire for emotional connection. This desire could lead women to make themselves sexually available outside of marriage, against their better judgment, but any such sexual contact would be extremely damaging to them spiritually and emotionally. Men were not in the same kind of danger, but all premarital sexual activity would create lasting bonds to past partners that would haunt the marital bed. I frequently heard testimonies from older teens and young adults about how God had freed them from lust and the legacies of past sexual relationships. The message I heard has deep roots in both Christian tradition and in broader cultural attempts to make sense of the complex realities associated with sex, attraction, desire, and gender. But these are not the only roots in our history. The strangeness of the message I heard becomes evident when we compare it to past precedent. We start with a brief review of the New Testament and its background. The first thing to point out is that ancient Christians, like ancient Jews, Greeks, and Romans, had understandings of sex and gender very different from ours. They believed there was one physical sex that could manifest itself in two genders, with a spectrum of possibilities defined in terms of heat, activity, and perfection. Men were hotter, more active, and more perfect. Something like this 
one sex view lies behind the Genesis creation stories with their claims that men and women alike are created in God's image and that men and women are partners who are related as closely as possible to each other. Genesis 2, 18-24 Only after the first couple's disobedience does hierarchy between men and women come into play in 3.16, suggesting that patriarchal domination is an effect of sin not intrinsic to God's purpose for humanity. Tom Yoder Neufeld's chapter in this volume treats the delicate topics of God's and Jesus's masculinities, so I will limit my comments here to noting the following. A. God is not a biological sexed being, so gendered descriptions of God are inherently metaphorical, and we must attend to biblical depictions of God that draw on feminine imagery. B. God's fatherhood in Scripture explicitly undermines human patriarchies. C. Salvation in Christ is not gendered, but is open to all through the shared path of discipleship. And D. Jesus disrupted many of society's assumptions about masculinity. For instance, by remaining single and at times downplaying the importance of marriage, by speaking with women as equals, by weeping openly, and by being executed by the state as a criminal. Jesus' legacy of complex masculinity shaped his movement and the churches that came out of it. Paul seems to have followed Jesus' teaching on marriage as evident in the strong preference he expresses for singleness, 1 Corinthians 7. And he included women missionaries and leaders in his evangelicalistic movement. Many readers therefore take Galatians 3.28, There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus, as a programmatic early Christian thesis on gender. Gender is not a decisive identity marker for Christians. There are difficult passages in both Old and New Testament that seem to reinforce or recommend patriarchy, and it is safe to say that the early church inherited a mixed theological legacy with regard to gender, sex, and sexuality. As Christianity grew and eventually became the official religion of the Roman Empire, many Christians assimilated to powerful Roman cultural patterns related to gender and sexuality. For some, Christian senators and other powerful men served as masculine icons. They were effective rulers of cities, armies, their own households, and public affairs. But others held up as icons the strange men who fled to the Egyptian and Syrian deserts and dedicated their lives to prayer and fasting. These men, sometimes called the Desert Fathers, provided an alternative iconic Christian masculinity that became institutionalized in medieval monasteries. Iconic monks in Europe proved their manhood in their constant wrestling with sin and their body's desires. Castration seems to have been an option for some in the early centuries. It was condemned at the Council of Nicaea in the year 325 Common Era, 
and later on, some sought to transform or even renounce their masculinity by dressing as women. Early Christian and medieval theologians shared Paul's strong preference for celibacy and virginity over marriage, and the extremely influential writings of Augustine, 354-430, Bishop of Hippo, suggested an indelible link between sex and sin. Augustine and most later theologians, however, tolerated sex among married laypersons when it was limited to procreative purposes. They typically judged all non-procreative sexual activity, even between married partners, as far more grievous than potentially procreative acts, including rape and incest. Thomas Aquinas's famous Summa Theologica, written 1265-74, grouped non-procreative sex acts such as masturbation, bestiality, homosexuality, and anal and oral sex in the category Sins Against Nature. This category, too, has had an enduring impact on Western Christian cultures and the societies they have colonized. Among the many shifts initiated by the 16th century Protestant Reformation was, in Protestant lands, the destruction of iconic monastic masculinity. This symbolic destruction followed the actual destruction of monasteries and convents across Protestant Europe. Protestant pastors were expected to be married fathers, as were almost all other men. Martin Luther's teachings on marriage would scandalize many a Protestant today, but much of his reasoning is familiar. He taught that, because men and women share an innate drive to procreate, almost everyone who can procreate should get married. And it didn't really matter to whom, so long as they could help you procreate and were not your sibling, parent, child, grandchild, or aunt and uncle. If your partner turned out to be impotent, then you should consider contracting a secret marriage that will bear fruit. Luther's views may have been extreme, but they point to the birth of a Protestant Christian culture whose embrace of marriage and procreation was unqualified by any monastic alternative. The Reformation coincided with the beginnings of European colonization of other parts of the world. European Christians encountered ancient cultures, some of them Christian, in Africa, Asia, and the Americas that had their own understandings of gender and sexuality. In many indigenous cultures in the Americas, for instance, some men dress as women, fulfilling special ceremonial roles or taking husbands. Women sometimes do the same, but in fewer numbers. These are known as two-spirit persons whose gender is neither simply male or female. They are considered to be a third gender. Similar cases, and even cases of fourth and fifth genders, are found in many parts of the world. European colonizers tended to regard these persons as sinful sodomites, or homosexuals, after that term was invented in the 19th century and attempted to enforce conformity to European Christian norms for gender and sexuality. More recent theological work by Two-Spirit Christians, sometimes done in conversation with transgender Christians, 
is leading to a reevaluation of earlier judgments. Colonialism affected Europeans as well as colonized communities. In encounters with cultures that tolerated or promoted third genders, sex between men or between women, polygamy, premarital sex, and other practices they regarded as unchristian and unnatural, European Christians tried both to reform their colonized subjects and to strengthen their own commitments to righteous gender and sexual norms. Renewed attention to gender and sexuality occurred in and through the newly widespread use of the category of race to classify populations and individuals. This category was invariably organized with white bodies at the top, black bodies at the bottom, and other bodies somewhere in between. While some, especially lower-class colonial men, pursued stable sexual relations with colonized women, and many men raped or had short-term sexual relations with them, racial classification was used throughout the colonial world to control marriage and the coinciding inheritance of property. These developments have had an enormous impact on global politics and economics and also on sexual practices and conceptions of gender. For instance, for many colonizers and their male descendants, the sexual conquest of women of color has been a mark of manhood. For their part, colonized men have been viewed as sexually voracious beasts or as asexual and effeminate. The portrayal varies in according to the needs of the colonizers. Notions of femininity, too, have been shaped by conflicts between white women and colonized and enslaved women of color. One colonial society that has developed a distinctive vision of Christian masculinity is the United States. Historically, white American men have pursued a vision of iconic masculinity, sometimes called the self-made man. This vision emerged in the aftermath of the American Revolution, during the westward expansion and accompanying genocide of indigenous Americans, and later through business ventures, sports, men's groups and clubs, arts and entertainment, and consumer goods that seek to recapture an individualistic and adventuresome spirit of manly domination. A key aspect of the genesis of the American self-made man was the confinement of women to the domestic sphere of child-rearing, cooking, and cleaning. Religious pursuits have at times been identified with women and domesticity, but men have also sought to take back Christian faith as a manly endeavor. This is especially the case in the movement known as Muscular Christianity which, near the end of the 19th century, began to construe discipleship as requiring the manly virtues of strength and toughness in mind, body, and spirit. Recent exemplars of muscular Christianity include the Promise Keepers organization and popular books such as Wild at Heart and Every Man's Battle. Mennonite men in the United States and Canada have had to define themselves in relation to this muscular Christianity, an especially tricky task 
given the common labeling of non-resistance and humility as effeminate. Though I did not know it by name, muscular Christianity had an impact on me through the message I heard about men, faith, and sexuality. Though we men are uniquely and constantly besieged by sexual temptation, we must resist, and can do so victoriously through Christ. This brief historical review of Christian understandings of gender, sex, and sexuality suggests that many aspects of this message have deep roots in Christianity. There has long been a suspicion of sexual desire and intercourse, and masculinity has long been associated with sexual control and with domination of women and other men. At the same time, many features of the message I was taught can be seen as novel, or at least questionable, in light of other Christian roots. Some of these strange roots include the preferences for single celibacy over marriage, and for exclusively procreative sex within marriage, which is rooted in the New Testament and ancient Catholic Christianity, a one-sex-two-genders understandings of bodies that was prevalent until recent centuries. Jesus's complex masculinity and the egalitarian impulses evident in his ministry and elsewhere in the Bible, theological reasons to doubt the equation of God and maleness, Luther's free-willing theology of marriage, and the violent and disturbing legacy of European Christian gender and sexual norms of the colonial period. To this list could be added items such as periodic reversals and assumptions about whether men or women are more inclined to sexual desires, and ancient and modern attempts to justify practices such as polygamy and same-gender sex and romance on Christian theological grounds. The message I received is not self-evidently the only or the traditional Christian teaching. The conception of Christian masculinity I and many Christians inherited need not be permanently binding. Conclusion At the beginning of this essay, I posed a series of questions about how the nature of manhood, about what makes a man a man. How much closer are we to answering these questions? By offering a dynamic definition of masculinity that highlights its historical and cultural variability, I have suggested that there are no simple answers. Reflecting on my birth certificate, I showed how bodies are classified by powerful institutions such as the state. These classifications, including gender classifications, so thoroughly shape how we identify bodies that we do not have recourse to neutral biological descriptions to answer our questions about masculinity. Instead, we see that there are multiple, often conflicting perspectives on masculinity, organized in relation to a smaller set of iconic masculinities. However we answer questions about masculinity, we need to acknowledge the existence of multiple masculinities and their relations to one another and to women. In my own case, masculine icons such as my father, athletes, and musicians offered me different possibilities for being a man, 
some of which I have needed to question in order to seek racial, gender, and sexual justice for and with marginalized persons and communities. The essays in part two of this volume give further evidence of the existence of multiple masculinities. Our Christian faith ought to give us some guidance, although we have seen that there are multiple Christian masculinities too. The message about men and sexuality I learned as a teenager can trace some of its roots to places deep in Christian history. Nevertheless, studying a broader range of Christian roots leads to the conclusion that there are diverse Christian perspectives on masculinity and sexuality. Sorting through these to offer substantive theological arguments requires hard work, work I have not attempted to do in this essay. My hope is that the section on Christian history, together with the sections on the body and masculine icons, will serve the Church in its ongoing discernment. I have said that we cannot simply choose a new masculinity on a whim, but we can learn about masculinities in general and examine how we have been shaped by specific masculinities. Through that process of learning, we might come to see some masculinities as more harmful than others and initiate efforts to transform ourselves and our communities. If Mennonites and other men are going to become peaceful at heart, then we need to engage this and other learning processes. I submit that the goal of these processes should not be to carve out an ideal masculinity that, when embraced, will position purportedly peaceful men to dominate women and others. Rather, I propose that we focus our attention on the transformation of men by the Holy Spirit to be disciples of Jesus Christ in mutual partnership with others.